Hello, GabFest listeners. It's pledge drive season on Slate Podcasts again. Later this episode, you'll be hearing about why you should support our show by joining Slate Plus. If you'd rather skip the whole thing, just join Slate Plus now and you won't hear any of it. Okay, here's the GabFest. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 2nd, 2018, the 3D printed Gab Fest edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon, you are hither and yon. You're in uh, some other New England state than usual. Maine. The state of Maine, the great state of Maine. How does it feel in the great state of Maine? Oh, it's lovely. The sun is out. There's a lake. It's really nice here. Maybe I'll stay forever. Ugh jealous <laughs> and look up in the sky it's a bird it's a plane it's super sub ruth marcus hello across from me here in washington hello ruth of the washington post you disappointed me david why is that already <laughs> because i thought i knew what the title was going to be of this week's edition and i thought it was going to be the fifteen thousand dollar ostrich jacket edition oh that would so, also have been a good title ruth that would have been good that would have been good i i felt like i had it nailed but alas uh, my ostrich jackets, I've generally gotten, like, I get them um, wholesale for, like, 9000 So I don't know why he's paying 15 He's getting the wrong because ostriches. He, be, because he can slash or he could at the time, but no longer. On this week's GabFest, we will talk about ostrich jackets and other things. Paul Manafort goes on trial in Virginia, even as President Trump gets more and more agitated about the Mueller investigation. Then the interesting, puzzling fight over 3D printed plastic guns. And then a truly wicked, demonic idea from the Trump administration to lower capital gains taxes. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And before we get any further, we have an announcement. We are very happy to announce Slate Day, 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 Day. I wish John were here to do the special effects. A live podcast experience that we're doing in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas. Please come join us and our fellow politically-minded shows, Trumpcast, Amicus, El Gabfest, The Gist, and us, The Political Gabfest. We will all be at Slate Day in Austin on Saturday, September 29th for a full day of podcasting. You can experience your favorite political podcasts live, and you can mingle with the hosts like me and Emily and John and fellow fans during our cocktail party and purchase exclusive merchandise at a Slate Day pop-up shop. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets and information. This is an intimate venue. There is limited seating. We're going to be at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas. So go get your tickets today. Go early. Go often. And if you want to make a weekend of it, the Texas Tribune is offering $100 off festival badges to Slate Day ticket holders. And we will have a link on our event page to learn more about the festival. That is a fantastic festival. You'd be crazy not to go to the festival if you're going to come see podcast day. It's a great festival and and cap it off with podcasting. So go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. The Paul Manafort trial began this week in a Virginia courthouse, or perhaps you should say the first Paul Manafort trial began. There will be at least two and who knows how many trials of the man who is the Napoleon of crime. This first Manafort trial concerns charges brought by special counsel Mueller of tax evasion and bank fraud. Mueller charges that Manafort lied, cheated, juggled, hid $60 million paid to him, much of it by Ukrainian oligarch Viktor Yanukovych, oligarch slash Ukrainian president Viktor Yanukovych, and then committed fraud when that money dried up in 2014 by lying to banks about various uh, fairly trivial matters, matters involving attempting to get loans and things like that. Manafort is also scheduled to go on trial in September in D.C. on money laundering charges. So Ruth, None of the charges in this case are related to President Trump, to collusion, and to the campaign. No collusion. So how do they connect to the larger Mueller investigation? Um, Well, they connect in a couple potential ways. Um, One is the potential, though it seems like if that were going to happen, it would have happened already, of Manafort flipping and being... um, providing evidence if he has any against Trump or at least some information about what the president or then candidate Trump knew about his involvement or other involvements with Russians. For example, Manafort was in the increasingly infamous Trump Tower meeting where they dangled dirt. 
The other way it could be potentially relevant is if it provides some insight into eventually, and that could also be with Manafort's cooperation, or maybe, um, though we don't seem to be getting it in this trial, maybe with the cooperation of Rick Gates, who was his alleged and now um, guilty pleading partner in these crimes of fraud. Um, Adam Davidson raises this point in a very uh, interesting piece in The New Yorker, which is there are two Manaforts. There's the man, there's ostrich jacket Manafort, who is just raking in these eye-popping sums of money and spending eye-popping sums of money that you really can't even imagine, like in supermarket sweepstakes, I'm dating myself. Like if you were tasked with spending that much money, it would be really hard to do. And then there is cash poor, desperate for um, infusion of money, Manafort, who has somehow gone through these eye-popping sums and is resorting, allegedly, she carefully says, um, to various forms of bank fraud in order to manage to continue to fund his lavish lifestyle. And the question that Adam raises, which I think is a really interesting question, is so he's desperate enough to do these fundamentally stupid and discoverable things like lying to banks about the reasons for loans or lying about whether it's rental property so he can extract more money from the mortgage. And this is at the very time he goes to work for the Trump campaign, unpaid. And he is owing the oligarch he's closest to something like $20 million. And he's talking to his colleagues about how he can get right with the oligarch and offering briefings with the oligarch. So what did he exactly offer in his desperation? We don't have evidence of that, but it seems to me to be an interesting question to answer your question. So, Emily, why uh, Ruth went some ways to answer this, but why is Mueller able to bring charges like this if they are so uh, on at least on their face so disconnected from Trump. I mean, could he could he charge uh, could he charge Jeff Sessions with jaywalking if he wanted to? Well, I mean, Mueller's directive from the Justice Department is broad because it talked about Russian interference in the election and all related matters. And so, as Ruth explained, the possibility of Manafort flipping um, and then the idea that there was something that he might have had to broker. So, you know, we haven't seen evidence of this yet. But, for example, the Republican Party's platform about the Ukraine changed in a kind of unexpected way Um before the election, around the time of the Republican convention. And you could imagine the special prosecutor trying to draw a line between these huge debts and all this lavish spending and that decision. Um, that's theoretical at this point. But it's that kind of connection, which we don't know of yet, but which could be, um, you know, out there within the grasp or the potential grasp of Mueller's team that would bring this into the all related matters sphere. I don't know about jaywalking by Jeff Sessions. That sounds like it could be a much harder um, reach, but you could, I mean, right. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and, the, and the theory about why, if even if Mueller is sitting on information about Manafort and something un unseemly with the Trump campaign is that he wouldn't want to tip his hand because he'd have to turn that material over to defense attorneys if he's going to use it at all in the case against Manafort, right? For for Brady reasons. Right. I mean, and there's to something... To throw a Bazelon oh, phrase back at... Back at our... Oh, yes. Thank you, David. All the lessons are sinking in. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's something odd about this case in the sense that if it's all about flipping Manafort, then why hasn't Manafort flipped? Is he waiting to see if he's actually found guilty and what the likely sentence will be? Is there some other reason we don't know that he doesn't want to flip or is afraid to flip? Um you know, or does he think Trump is going to pardon him? Um, so all those questions are swirling out there. But in the meantime, um, yeah, we can't necessarily see all the evidence. And the fact that this trial is, um, there's a kind of a, a wall between this trial and all of the Russia allegations is useful to Mueller. It's also a wall that the judge in the trial has been enforcing um, firmly. He has told the prosecution not to talk about Russia, um, and he also has told the defense not to make this all about the idea that, um, you know, Manafort is being persecuted. So I think the idea is to have a straight up, a straight up trial on the facts about the tax and bank fraud allegations at issue here. So Ruth, you, you presumed early in your response to my first question that 
Manafort has decided not to flip. But but just going to the point Emily made, isn't it just as likely that Manafort Manafort's occasion to flip would be after a guilty after if he's if he's found guilty and he's like, I want to minimize the sentence, I'll flip then. And then actually what he's doing is inviting the pardon. So I find Manafort's legal strategy here almost as puzzling as Rudy Giuliani's legal strategy here. And I'm trying to figure out which one makes less sense to me. Because pardoning Manafort is he's Manafort is shooting the moon. Okay. He's shooting the moon in a number of ways. In order for him to have a terrific outcome, which seems highly unlikely given the ample documentary evidence against him, he would have to first be acquitted in this trial and then be acquitted in the second trial that's um, scheduled for September. Uh, he could have chosen to put these two trials together. He chose not to because they ha- they have to be separated because of complicated venue reasons of where the crimes allegedly occurred. And But he could have chosen to waive the venue, as you know, having gone to the Bazelon School of Law. <laughs> and <laughs> the excellent... Tui- tuition, <laughs> tuition is free, but the professors are tough. ABA accredited Bazelon School of Law featuring many professors Bazelon. Um, and that that seems like a really hard thing to do. If he thought his best thing was to flip and get the lowest possible sentence... You don't actually curry a lot of favor from with prosecutors or goodwill with prosecutors by forcing them to um, take the case to trial. Quite the opposite. (laughs) Yes. Good point, Professor. And so so what's he doing um, with that? Once they have a conviction, they kind of have you by the scruff of your neck. So that leaves the um, seems to me pardon strategy, which is you don't put, I mean, I guess first we'll pardon Al Capone and then we'll pardon Paul Manafort. Nothing is out of um, the realm of possibility in pardon Sheriff Joe world, but it seems like a very risky strategy to me. I know that consistency is like irrelevant here, but I it is interesting vis-a-vis the pardon strategy that Trump's main rhetorical response is to minimize his connections with Manafort, right? It's like, I barely knew him. He hardly worked for me, which isn't really the thing that you say before you're about to pardon someone. Though, again, I realize that like asking for consistency is um, is a fool's errand. No, you might. I I barely knew him. He hardly worked for me. That's why I have the freedom um, in Trump brain to pardon him. And he's being treated very unfairly. C.E.G. A la Al Capone. How, 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 how much worse his life is than Al Capone's. Yes, you're right. Okay, held. that lays this the This was my mark. favorite and undernoticed tweet from yesterday, by the way, um, which is the Al Capone comparison because Paul Manafort, who, by the way, had been freed on bond and was under house arrest and living a perfectly, under the circumstances, adequate lifestyle, new civil libertarian, really caring about people being detained without due process. Hello, separated children and parents. President Donald Trump is talking about him being held in solitary confinement. Why is he being held in solitary confinement? Because a judge found that he had been trying to tamper with the witnesses against him. I feel really bad for him. So the president seems more uh, worked up than usual this week about the Mueller investigation. He called on Attorney Jeff Sessions to to shut it down. Then his lawyers quickly insisted, no, no, he was just that was just his opinion. He wasn't actually trying to obstruct justice. And and he's calling it a, a hoax and of course the usual witch hunt language. Do you Emily, does it feel uh what 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 do you have any sense about whether he's actually agitated about this or why where that agitation might come from? Not really, except that the trial is starting. I feel like there's a lot going on beneath the surface that we can't see. And the fact that this was the moment Trump crossed the line and publicly called on Sessions to get rid of this pesky investigation suggested to me that I don't understand the whole context here. Because on its face, the timing looked strange. There had just been a story in the New York Times about how Mueller is looking at Trump's tweets and considering whether they're relevant to an obstruction of justice um, charge or scenario. So it just seemed like, you know, awfully blatant. On the other hand, I think a lot of Trump's public statements have have gone in the direction of like, I'm saying this right out loud so there can't be anything wrong with it. 
So I have I want I have a um, hypothesis. Oh, good. Here that I'd like to throw out that that Trump's agitation, and I thought David used exactly the right word. His recent agitation is not related to the Manafort trial, though he is actually putting Mueller on trial, um, uh, or trying to. But it's related to something else that we've gotten some glimmers of, which is Mueller has been once again seeking and trying to figure out how to obtain the, um, Trump's testimony, not only about collusion, there is no collusion, but also about um, the possibility of obstruction of justice. And I am th- I am making this up here, but I think that there's a point at which Mueller is going to have to put up or shut up in terms of asking nicely and you know, making a decision between um, asking nicely and then going away if he doesn't get what he wants or doing what prosecutors tend to do in these circumstances, which is issue subpoenas. And maybe um, he has said in his latest offer, which was reported this mo- last night or this morning, about um, what how he would be willing to narrow the scope of questioning of the president and um, the methods of questioning the president. Maybe he has also um, suggested that there could be a subpoena in the works. Um, I have a a corollary of my hypothesis, if I may, which is also maybe the president and his team also know or suspect that having seen two Russia-related indictments from the special counsel, that the next indictment is coming and that it could be a conspiracy indictment um, that names a lot of people who are Americans this time, who aren't just Russians. That does seem like the other shoe that's been about to drop since the big indictment of all the Russian conspiracy conspiracists. Emily, we've been getting awfully close also to the collusion is not a crime argument. I mean, we're there, basically. Rudy Giuliani has essentially made that after Michael Cohen claimed that Trump knew in advance of the Trump Tower meeting. Um, Giuliani's response has basically been, well, Trump didn't know about the meeting. The meeting didn't occur because I was told by the people who weren't at the meeting that didn't occur, that it didn't happen. But even if that meeting had occurred, so what? It's not a crime. Doesn't, it's not a, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is, they're just, it's this endless amount of chaff. It's this sort of, you know, the previous, uh, previous answer is, is no longer valid, is no longer operative. Um, Wait, I got confused there in the chaff. What meeting didn't occur? Well, I mean, the, the Giuliani answer seems to be Cohen there was no planning meeting for the, for oh, the Russian planning meeting, I see <laughs> which there that meeting didn't occur and I know it didn't occur because I've talked to the people who weren't at that meeting who said that it didn't occur I mean basically it's a he he, he can't he, it's it's a non he's not making a sensical argument which is what I was trying to convey but but in any case at the root of what Giuliani seems to be saying is it is even if there was a meeting to plan the Russian meeting even if President Trump knew about it so what? Which seems to be, uh, you know, this this gets us to all the way to where we knew we were headed, which is that colluding with the Russians is not a crime. Um, yes. And there have been a number of commentators on the right who've been defending this idea. So what? So what if the dirt comes from a foreign government? It's, you know, it's OK to take oppo research or to take whatever you get from any source, no matter what laws they broke to acquire it, no matter how much, um, you know, other sensible people might think it's not so great to have um, Putin's folks cyber hacking um, in order to interfere with our elections. I think we are like right up against that argument. And um, it's going to be interesting to to watch that play out because it really raises deep questions, I would say, about patriotism and nationalism in a kind of... Um, deep sense. And uh, it's, I think, amazing to see us go this far um, or to see some people, some conservatives go this far in their willingness to defend um, Trump on these grounds. But is that the case, Ruth, that, that, that actually colluding to get information falsely obtained, illegally obtained by a foreign government is not criminal? I don't know. I'm, I'm just asking. No, um, no, it is criminal, and um, one, or it, it certainly can be criminal. Can be and, exactly, and it can be criminal because, and we've seen this in some of the earlier indictments. It is, it can be part of a conspiracy to defraud the United States of honest and fair election. If you are taking, and it can be um, uh, violations of campaign finance laws, taking things of value, not reporting things of value taking things of value from a foreign entity, which is um, 
additionally prohibit under the campaign finance laws. There are any number of ways in which a not terribly creative or law-stretching prosecutor can go after this because and, and would because for this reason. It's wrong. We know it's wrong. How do we know it's wrong? We know it's wrong because the president of the United States took pains to hide this and lie about it from people when it was first discovered that there was this meeting. And then he lied about lying about it. And now he may be lying about whether he knew about it at the time. He said at the time, by the way, and we should all recall this, uh, that the meeting was first reported on, that anybody would have taken this meeting. This is the kind of thing that happens in campaigns. No, it's not. And the way we know it's not is all the efforts they took to obscure it and make sure we never learned about it. All right. Last question uh, on this. Let's go back to the Manafort trial for a minute, Emily, which is Manafort, if Manafort ends up being convicted in this trial, it will be because there are an array of witnesses against him who have been offered immunity or reduced sentences, Rick Gates being the number one person in, the, in, that, in that category. Uh, how, how is it that prosecutors effectively use witnesses like that who are themselves compromised or themselves uh, basically saying getting, getting protected um, in order to turn on their former boss or former colleague? I mean, it's really normal for prosecutors to use witnesses like that. They're good witnesses, right? They tend to have a lot of detail. They have up-close, observed information. Sometimes they have documents. I mean, it's just a classic play, and Rick Gates seems well-positioned to make it. I mean, already in the testimony, the effort by the defense to say Gates actually did all of this himself in terms of the you know tax and bank fraud without Manafort's knowledge, some of the vendors have been um, disputing that and denying it and saying, no, we were dealing with Manafort directly. So, um, you know, there's a, a real playbook the prosecutors are following here. Yeah, you know, witnesses rarely come in the form of Mother Teresa with unblemished records. They um, if you're the witness against a partner who was accused of a crime and you have actually already pled guilty to a crime yourself, you're open to being impeached. And that's why God invented documents to go along with that and corroborating witnesses who um, may also be less than stellar, but you you add up the legitimacy. We may not actually hear from Rick Gates. Which is weird, don't you think, Ruth? I mean, the prosecutor said yesterday they weren't sure whether they were going to call him, and I was surprised by that. A a little weird, but maybe they just don't want to open him up for other reasons that we can't imagine yet. Maybe they have have a pretty strong documentary case. We'll see. I want to say one thing about this trial, which is we need to have cameras in courtrooms. If we don't have cameras in courtrooms, we should certainly have audio in courtrooms. It is just outrageous in the modern era that we are not able, that ordinary people out there who might be interested in this are not able to hear if they want and have a lot of time on their hands, all the testimony for themselves and make decisions about what they think is going on and have to have it filtered through us in the news media. I could not Exhibit agree a, more. Why, why things need to change. Wouldn't, and wouldn't it be great to have cameras in the courtroom and maybe God will bless us by having Paul Manafort testify. Wouldn't that be glorious to see the Paul Manafort testify? Ch- chances of Paul Manafort testifying? Not. <sighs> would you bet your ostrich skin I would blazer bet, that I you're would, wearing right now, I Ruth? would bet my non-existent ostrich skin, but absolutely fantastic looking blazer on it. <laughs> What color would it be? I feel like if you're going to have an ostrich blazer, it should be like orange or pink. Otherwise, what's the it point? It would be ostrich colored, whatever that is. <laughs> no, you no, dye you it. Can you can't dye want, it. No, I would like like mine to be real. Oh, I see. But it's a, but, you I, can, but you don't even know what skin, you don't even know what color ostrich skin is. They're covered with feathers. Wait, I think skin. I thought we were talking about the feathers. It's leather. Oh, no. It's leather. It's ostrich leather. leather. I did not see why the pictures didn't look covered with feathers. I've been confused all this time. I've been thinking about the $950 tie. There was a $950 tie? I I am a very, very deep thinking person. So I spent some time last night looking at the photos that were put into um, evidence or at least into the record of all of his clothes. And let me say some of them are really hideous. And there was also $950 ties. This episode of The GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. 
It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Howdy, GABFEST listeners. I'm interrupting the show this week because we're doing the Slate Plus Pledge Drive. And I'm here with the editorial director of Slate Plus, Gabriel Roth. Gabriel's in New York. I'm in D.C. But we, magic of connection, we're, it's like we're together. Almost. It's almost together. We're almost, almost together. I feel very close to you right now, David. Uh, that's nice. I, I I really admire your voice, Gabe. I really like how your voice sounds. People tell that to me sometimes, but I, I want to voice flatter you. You that, have a lovely voice. That's so nice of you. Now I feel even closer to you. But uh, the way that listeners can feel even closer to you, David, is by joining Slate Plus. Isn't that right? It is. Slate Plus is Slate's wonderful membership program. And it is a chance for Slate listeners, which I guess you are because you're listening to this podcast, and Slate readers to support what we do at Slate. So it's a chance for you to support the podcast that you're listening to here, the GabFest, and to the other shows that we're doing. There's Trumpcast, there's Amicus, there's The Gist, there's Slow Burn, there's Slate Money. There are more than 25 podcasts, which is crazy. That is a huge number with this wealth of opinion and analysis, all of it smart, all of it considered. And Slate Plus is a way for you to say, hey, I value this excellent independent journalism that Slate is producing. And I value these podcasts I get to listen to. I'm going to give Slate some money to help support that. And of course, it's not simply what we're doing in your ears. It's also what we're doing online. The The magazine itself, the the articles and and videos and stories of all sorts that we're publishing are so valuable, especially in the Trump era, where you have writers like Jamel Bowie, Dahlia Lithwick, Mark Joseph Stern. They are writing about the biggest stories of the day. They're giving incredibly smart, independent, nonpartisan, aggressive coverage of the most important issues that the country has faced. And uh, it takes money to fund that. And of course, Slate gets some of that revenue from advertising and some of it from other sources, but but we value the contributions that readers and listeners like you can give. It's a chance for you to support something that you clearly value and to allow us to continue to do this work. So that's that's kind of one piece of what you get with Slate Plus, but it is not by any stretch of the imagination the only thing you get with Slate Plus. And in fact, there is with for podcast listeners, there's a special treat that you get with Slate Plus, which is what, Gabe? Well, as I think GabFest listeners have probably heard, every episode of the GabFest has an extra segment at the end of it. If you're listening to the GabFest and you're not a Slate Plus member, you're not getting the whole show. You're hearing uh, the three hosts talk about three political topics. And then right when your version of the recording ends, they continue to talk. They loosen their collars. They they let it hang out a little bit, and they talk more about something else, something often something related to the news or to politics, often something a little bit more personal. Uh, there was a recent episode in which uh, John Dickerson and, and Dahlia, who was guest hosting, talked about moving from Charlottesville to New York and also about their feelings about Charlottesville, a place that both of them care for profoundly, but that's now at the center of our struggle against resurgent fascism and white supremacism in America. Um, it was really, it's personal, but it's political. It was quite profound and affecting. And and there's a way in which on these Slate Plus bonus segments that come every week, you sometimes get to those those human moments that I think podcast fans really cherish. You get them a lot more in those Slate Plus bonus segments. 
So every week, a bonus segment. Every week, no ads in the GabFest. No ads in any of your favorite Slate podcasts. Uh, much more than that. Every week on our Slow Burn, our, our Watergate miniseries, we did a complete bonus episode for Slate Plus members every week going deeper into the Watergate story. Season two of that show is coming out soon. It's about the Bill Clinton impeachment and, and Monica Lewinsky and Ken Starr. And again, there will be a bonus episode every week with long, detailed analyses and interviews and conversations about the people who were involved in, in that crazy story. Only Slate Plus members are going to get to hear those episodes. Uh, There's our Slate Academy series, the ones with Jamel Bowie about the history of slavery in America and about uh, the failure of Reconstruction after the Civil War. The one about uh, fascism in Europe with Rebecca Onion and June Thomas and Josh Keating. Um, I've learned a ton from those series and, and they're only for Slate Plus members. There's a ton of stuff that you get as a Slate Plus member in addition to doing the really important thing that David was talking about of supporting the content that you love and that you cherish. Uh, If you really value this show, if you value the other podcasts Slate makes, if you value Slate as a website, if you think it's an important news source and an important part of the media, especially right now, we want you to help support it. And you can do that by joining Slate Plus. Uh, You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. All right. Thank you for uh, joining me, David. I'll let you get back to the show. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Let's have a fight about 3D printed guns on Tuesday, a day before download day. A judge in Seattle barred a libertarian gun enthusiast named Cody Wilson from uploading his massive files to the internet, which contain the specs that would allow anyone to 3D print a plastic gun, a gun that would come without serial numbers, a gun that might be able to sneak through metal detectors. Wilson had been barred since, I think, 2013 from releasing his plans or re-releasing his plans on the internet uh, when the Obama administration used an arms export control law to prevent him from uploading them. They invoked this law and and the subsequent litigation and delays had kept this uh, in the courts and, and off the internet for those several years. Although, Wilson had already uploaded the the specs previously, and so 100,000 people had already downloaded them. Um, the Trump administration has reversed the, the State Department arms control ban and said they're not going to enforce it or said that it doesn't apply, and they even paid a bunch of Wilson's legal bills. But this judge's decision or this judge's order basically said, look, the cost of releasing these out into the wild is enormous, so, so until we get this settled, we're not going to allow them to be uploaded. So um, in fact, 3D gun designs are already available on the internet. You can get designs. There are a lot of them. Wilson's own ones have already circulated. It's also already legal to make your own gun at home. It's a tradition that dates back before the revolution. It's also the case that 3D guns are hard to make, expensive and shoddy, and you'd be an idiot to make one rather than go out and buy, get a gun, and basically any other method would get you a better gun. So why... Why is uh, why is this a big deal, Ruth? Well, you might you'd be an idiot to do it that way unless um, this seemed like an interesting challenge to you, or you wanted to try to smuggle a gun on a plane that was plastic and way more difficult to detect through ordinary mechanisms, or if you wanted a gun, they call them ghost guns that didn't have a serial number and couldn't be traced to you. So you could be a sort of um, enterprising hobbyist here, or you could be a really bad person. Um, This is a big deal because it just, it's it's a hard case because this information, as information is wont to do, is already out there and circulating. And if you are a bad actor, um, or an enterprising hobbyist, you could probably already find it. And 3D printers are not um, that difficult to access. You can get them in public libraries. You can, my daughter, who's an architecture student, does a lot of 3D printing these days. And yet we find ourselves in a country with more guns than people. We are desperately trying to figure out constitutional ways to keep these guns out of the hands of dangerous people and make sure that these guns are not brought into places like airplanes um, and other places where we need to keep them away from people. And this is just another one of these um, manifold technological challenges where the technology seems to have kind of outpaced our capacity to deal with it and perhaps outpaced the law. 
I'm going to start arguing with you shortly, but let's let's get some more stuff out here. So, Emily, why isn't this a a just a straight up First Amendment issue? This person has a bunch of files. This is information. This is this is these are words and code and numbers that he wishes to distribute. And therefore, he should be allowed to distribute them in the way that you should be allowed to distribute your articles in the way that I can upload a random string of numbers to the Internet, should I so choose. Why is why is this constraint on his free speech legit constraint? Well, he may still win on those grounds, Cody Wilson, who I think is like just proved such a PR genius in all of this. I mean, we're focusing on this because he has been successful in his PR strategy where he was not successful in his legal strategy until the Trump administration just changed his position and caved in. You know, look, it is not a settled question, at least not nationally by the Supreme Court, that all computer code is protected by the First Amendment. And even if it does all count as speech, we have limitations on speech. We, you know, child pornography is illegal. That is also data that is shared over the Internet. Counterfeit money is illegal. Um, so there's a, a point at which the speech analogy always breaks down and you can move into conduct that the government has a strong enough interest in um, in in banning and preventing the spread of. Now, that's a different question from whether it's really effective or not at this point, since, as Ruth said, the blueprints for um, these 3D plastic, potentially um, undetectable and untraceable guns are already out there. Um, but it doesn't mean that the government should um, give up a winning position in a lawsuit to make it easier to spread this information. I mean, I so several several things. I also do not like the idea of using a law which was designed for one purpose. This arms control export law was not designed for this purpose. It had it totally other things in mind. It was not designed to 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 stop what what it's being used to stop here. It was so for like military like the, equipment, right? Yeah. 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 I don't like the idea of it being invoked for a totally separate purpose. Congress had shown no intent to to bar guns like this. There's Actually, been the, wrong. Sorry to interrupt you, where, but where, wrong. There is a congressional law that prohibits the manufacture and use of, of plastic guns. So undetectable I, I mean, weapons. I understand your kind undetectable of good, guns. Undetectable your good, guns. Your good housekeeping argument that this law was not intended for that purpose, and I have some sympathy with it, but it's not true. And then I will apologize well, for interrupting you and let you go no, on. No, no, okay, never that's true that Congress has no for interest in David. This. No, you're, no, that's you're, that's a that's a totally fair point. You're you're absolutely right. It, it although uh, yes, Congress has said you cannot manufacture undetectable guns. I think what Wilson would argue is that we're not manufacturing anything. Yes, he does argue sim- that over and over we're, again. You're right. Sim- that I'm is a simply point. giving a p- bit of information the way the anarchist cookbook told people how to make bombs. Um, I'm just telling them something that they can do if they want to. So that's number one. I, I just feel like, look, there probably will come the day when 3D printed guns are extremely reliable, that you can make them in a cost effective way uh, at scale. Um, and you can do it in your garage. That day is nowhere near here. The guns that are being contemplated here are incredibly unreliable. They don't. They basically don't work. They're more dangerous to the person who who manufactures it than the person who might use to the person who's using it than to the person they're shooting at. There is this very long and honorable tradition of homemade guns in this country, and I think you you go after it at your peril. I, I actually think that the the vast majority of people who want to make guns on their own are doing it because they are gun enthusiasts and hobbyists and have and are at, are interested in doing it for for intellectual reasons and pleasure reasons and and to spend a lot of time and energy on going after them seems like a a huge waste of time there is not these these designs are available and have been available for years and i don't think we've seen any evidence of a crime upsurge or of these guns being used in any way and therefore, to to focus a huge amount of intellectual energy and legal capital and time on fighting it seems like a big waste of time to me. And finally, it's like of all the issues that gun you can, I, you know, the, the America's gun policy is totally fucked up and bad. But of all the issues to spend time focusing on, this seems like a maybe 500th on the list. Like there's so many things that these attorney generals could be doing other than stopping these plants from getting on the Internet and, and giving, you know, giving – and irritating people like me who who want to sympathize with gun control efforts, 
I just feel like they've made they've picked the wrong battle. There's so many other things that 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 matter so much more. So how is all that going to change when someone smuggles one well-made pla- the exceptional plastic gun that works through airline security and then like takes it out on a plane? either just to prove it can be done or to shoot someone. Like, we don't need something to be common to be really dangerous when we're talking about plastic guns that can't be detected in metal detectors. I mean, you're, you, you, are, you are positing something that hasn't happened, and I can give you so many other terrible things that happen every day with, with the free availability of guns that you, don't need to, that you don't need to invent a bogeyman about. I mean, like, that we, we already know that assault weapons are dangerous. We already know that, that not licensing people in a serious way, that allowing, uh, you know, concealed carry to, to spread, that having stand-your-ground laws to spread uh, is, is much more dangerous than anything else. To, to, to spend this time and energy focusing on, on these ghost guns, which is – it's just an, it's an illusory issue. It's a ghost issue. Seems to me like a, like a, like a distraction and a waste of time. It seems to me like a... Per- and also constitutionally wrong, incidentally. It, it seems to me like a percolating issue. In other words, technology is rapidly advancing. 3D printing technology is rapidly advancing. Um, it may be difficult to make an effective, safe, as it, safe to the user um, plastic gun now. Um, that's going to look awfully different in two years, maybe, or four years. And so saying you shouldn't worry about it now because it's not a problem now doesn't seem to me to be the most responsible thing to do. And um, and there are challenges with dealing with a lot of the other legal challenges, constitutional challenges, with dealing with a lot of the other things that you mentioned. So, and by the way, the thing that, um, this is my killer argument, President Trump says you're wrong. That one of the fascinating things that happened at the oh-so-rare White House briefing yesterday was that Sarah Sanders said, the president has uh, this happened. The Justice Department didn't let the president know this was happening, and he thinks it's wrong. Ha! I'm not interested in that. That's not a killer. But David, argument. don't That's you think no you're interested at all to me? I, the I NRA, like yeah, Trump the NRA is sorry. is, is anti 3D printed guns. Yes, because why they, is well, that? because the because gun industry the isn't so excited about people making their own guns, right? I mean, there are, at least those values are in conflict. I I wonder if you're misreading the politics. I mean, it seems to me that the idea of an undetectable, untraceable plastic gun could be a game changer. And Ruth is right. Like the technology isn't here right now, but it doesn't seem all that theoretical that it's within reach and that it's something we should be planning for. And it may be that our laws have to change and take a different approach and start focusing on gun possession and, you know, try to get back. But <laughs> but I just don't understand the, the sort of hastening of this um, of this next step of access to undetectable weapons. Well, you 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 make a totally fair point, Emily, which is like that. It may well be that this is a more effective political argument um, because people get worked up about the idea of a three D printed, uh, you know, undetectable gun, even though it's a it's a fake scale. I, I just like as a ra- as a rational person, I just find overblowing the threat from these things. It pisses me off. Like you, there are so many other genuine threats out there. We talked about one last week with the stand your ground and the fact that wherever you turn, people are concealed carrying guns all the time. But I feel like your time horizon is strange to me. Like right at this moment, okay, that seems all okay. I'm not sure I totally agree with you, but I'm like 95% there with you. But if, you know, we're two to five to 10 years away to a situation in which people can make these guns, then why are we laying the groundwork for it now? Because no one's going to bother to make these guns because it's too easy to get a gun in every other No, way not an undetectable plastic gun. It is not. That's not true. And one that's untraceable. All those things are illegal right now. And we are handing people the means to make it much easier to get them despite those laws. People don't com- – people don't uh, – it's not that important to people committing crimes that they have an undetectable gun. What I like, that's like, not, I, the what reason, the reason about? some people the reason the, yeah to some small number of people, but well, the reason some people small number the reason people can pe- do a lot of yeah, damage. The reason terrorists. the reason I mean, people get the so reason obvious. people get caught in crimes is rarely because their gun is traced. Not never, but that's not the reason. The reason is that they leave fingerprints and clues everywhere they go, 
and because there are witnesses and because there's security cameras. That's the reason people get caught. It's not because the gun is untraceable, except in a few rare occasions. And But I, I just don't – it's it, like as a thing to get worked up over, I don't want to do it. I would rather get worked up over the thing that does seem to me to be killing lots of people and which seems an active threat. Not, not this. Well, I mean, that's if I were the French government or the British government, and I where, think I, where my country is not awash in guns, I might care more. Right. No, I mean, look, there is a hyper-rational argument that even if we're facilitating the next big terrorist act, when you're thinking about risk rationally, that doesn't stack up against all of the, you know, homicides and suicides by gun, which we countenance every day, and they mount through the years. However, I think a lot of people have a different gut reaction to the notion of plastic undetectable guns on airplanes. That seems dangerous. Um, so politically, I, I saw this in a different way, which is that, I mean, my assumption was Trump was having a just like gut reaction of like, wait a second, this doesn't sound like a very good idea. And the NRA has both come out in favor of this um, as, you know, part of freedom and liberation under the Second Amendment and also expressed some doubts about it. They're kind of having it both ways. Right. You, you, you guys may be right that it is actually a winning political issue, which I and and therefore and therefore gun safety and, and gun control advocates should work, be very worked up over it because they can win on it. That's that's a that's a good argument. I just I just think it's I think it's not it's not nearly the problem that people want to make it out to be. But that's but you're right. Like as a political issue, it might be a winner. Hey, Ruth, that was pretty good. I feel like we teamed yeah. up effectively on that one. We did. We got him. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the category of comically wicked ideas springing from the money bags who populate the top of the Trump administration, we bring you Treasury Secretary Mnuchin's latest notion floated, floated privately and pr- almost certainly not going anywhere. But his notion is to cut capital gains by 100 to 200 billion, capital gains taxes, excuse me, by 100 to 200 billion dollars over the next day, decade by changing how the Treasury accounts for inflation capital gains and doing this without legislation, doing this by fiat, by a stroke of the pen at the Treasury Department and how they interpret certain regulations. Currently, if you buy a share of something at $100 a share and it goes to $1,000 a share and you sell it, you pay taxes on that $900 difference at a, at the relatively low capital gains rate, incidentally, not, not at a normal income rate. But if inflation, if you sort of said inflation, if you, if you, if you, if you had that hundred dollars and, and had inflated over time, it would have been worth $200. So you should only be taxed on the difference between that two, between the $200 and the thousand dollars. So you'd only be taxed on $800 and you would save a significant amount of money. This is called indexing. It has been rejected repeatedly or never adopted re- repeatedly by the by Congress. The Bush administration also considered doing this by fiat uh, at some point about 15 years ago and didn't do it. So, Ruth, how could they even be contemplating? <laughs> it's a pure giveaway to the richest people in the country. And they really were thinking about doing it. No. Okay. It is yet another pure giveaway to the richest people in the country. And it is... Outraged piled upon outrage. There is the outrage, well, outrage piled upon outrage piled upon outrage. And I probably will come up with more before I <laughs> Go finish through this. it. Um, outrage number one is that we are in a deficit soaring position. I know we don't talk about it or worry about it anymore, in which the last thing we need to do as trillion dollar deficits come roaring back is to add another. <clears throat> $100 billion to the debt, at least. Number two is that if you are going to spend that extra money, these are the last human beings on earth on whom you would spend it. And that would be the super rich who would reap the, is there something bigger than lion's share? Um, <laughs> super lion's share of 
the benefit here. This can is I, not, can um, I interrupt with a statistic that I just yes. found amazing? So more than 90% of the benefits go to the top 10%. 86% to the top 1%, and nearly two-thirds to the top 0.1%. Thank you. Numbers are good things. There's your super um, lion share. So, you know, these these are not the forgotten Trump voters that he told us he was going to be paying attention to, the forgotten men, working men and women. Number three, um, which is just what sends you into kind of hyperspace of outrage, is the notion of doing this by executive fiat. I thought we heard a lot of complaints um, during the Obama administration about how he was doing things through executive order and it was outrageous and we needed to pass legislation. And the notion that you could pass a tax cut by the stroke of the president's pen is just crazy making and it should be particularly crazy making to people who call themselves conservatives. Okay, I'm done. So why did they float this idea, Emily? It's obviously not going to happen. They've already basically walked it back. Oh, don't, 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 don't be so sure. Okay. Yeah, I feel like they floated it because they think it's bad to have people, you know, not be able to account for inflation on their capital gains benefits. I mean, the other thing I'm puzzled by is if if this whole notion of um, adjusting for inflation is so important for taxes, then wouldn't you make the whole tax code change in this way so that it wouldn't just benefit the super rich? Like, shouldn't we have this rationalization, if that's what it is, happen for the rest of us, too? I'm, I'm puzzled by that. So, Emily, here's where I, or I actually didn't interrupt you. Okay, so I don't need to apologize. <laughs> I don't need to be a girl and apologize all the time. Um, we do actually have some rationalization, but not all, currently built into the tax code. For example, income tax brackets for regular income are indexed for inflation. So if you were designing the perfect tax code, also known as not in any way the tax code that we now have, there might be a legitimate argument for designing a capital gains code that also took inflation into account. But let's be serious. We have a capital gains rate that, as David pointed out, is way better than the rate on uh, most people's ordinary income. It is a huge benefit if you can take your income and realize it as a capital gain. So the people, it's not only that the people who are benefiting from this change um, don't need an additional set of tax cuts, it's that they are already benefiting from the kind of dual um, nature of the tax code, which gives preferences to capital gains already. So they don't need another break. And by the way, let's talk, I have some numbers also. There was just a study by the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy, I think I'm getting the name right, that looked at the totality of tax cuts that have been amassed during the Bush, Clinton, uh, Bush, Obama, and Trump years. And it came up with $2 trillion, not $2 trillion total, but $2 trillion was the amount that flowed to the top 1%. These top 1% that don't need more. So we have this rich guy economy problem where basically the the entire apparatus of the U.S. government is oriented around helping the re- super rich in various ways. And the Republican Party is a, like 100% oriented around that. But I feel it's like even magnified by the fact that the two top economic policymakers in the country, who I would argue are the president and his treasury secretary, come from parts of the economy that are fundamentally different than the parts of the economy that most of us live in. So Mnuchin comes out of finance and Trump comes out of real estate. And neither of those are the, are you really, uh, neither of those are, are the parts of the economy where people, you have a lot of workers who are working for a company who benefit, who, who, who are relatively low paid and who benefit from economic growth. They, their finance is essentially an intellectual profession where you're, you're, uh, you know, competing for money and you're, it's not about the creation of, of, uh, economic activity that helps the world really. I mean, it's only indirectly that way and real estate. It's about accumulation of, uh, of a asset, which only one person can have access to. And it doesn't real estate doesn't employ people. Real estate doesn't create jobs for people in the way that other professions do. And I think that, that as a result, we have, we end up with it. It, it magnifies the tendency to do economic policy that really just helps rich people rather than thinking about, worker how workers can benefit and we and one and 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 then we've seen we've seen 
one other point, which is a slightly separate point, which is the benefit of the Trump tax cuts has flown overwhelmingly to corporations as it was expected, right? And what have corporations done with all that money is that they've done stock buybacks so that they've spent a huge percentage of the money that they're getting to buy back their own stock, which basically benefits shareholders, it benefits CEOs in particular, because CEOs tend to hold a lot of stock, and doesn't benefit workers at all, because workers don't get nothing, because most workers don't own anything more than a nominal share in the companies that they work for. And and instead, it's again, that's a gain that has simply flown to the very rich in a way that's 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 economically completely unproductive. It's not investment. It's not new new plants. It's not new jobs. It's nothing like that. It's simply it's simply uh, capital gains for the the richest people in the country. It, it just makes you sick. It's so disgusting. this is like a comically plutocratic proposal floated, as you said, by um, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, who is like uh, has untold wealth by a president of lots of wealth. Are there political consequences for this? It seems pretty easy to grasp. Well, not if they don't do it. There's Only one, a few people will hear about it. So the, um, there's one other player that we should mention here who's the president's relatively new economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, who is also a big proponent of this. I, I was at a session on the Hill with a bunch of congressional aides earlier this week, and I thought uh, somebody asked the question, should we take this proposal seriously and as something that they would do either unilaterally or through legislation? I thought they were going to, this was a bipartisan group, laugh it off the table for the reasons you suggest that this is not a political winner. And they said, no, 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 this this is, this is look, looks like it could be serious. So brace yourselves. Wow. Well, if the Democrats don't find a way to to throw in the face of the Trump folks and throw in the face of Republican politicians that that unfairness of the what's happened in the economy and the unfairness of the tax cuts they are committing political malpractice they've got to be able to 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 indicate that to voters because it's disgusting it's absolutely disgusting what has happened to regular voter regular workers in the country and non-workers in the country when you look at the benefits that are going to the richest people it's it's just there should be pitchforks there should be pitchforks and 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 a little uh, class warfare there should be class warfare it's incredible that there isn't class warfare can you guys even come up with a more appalling measure do you come up with something which you'd be like wow they really came up with a something that was just really gross even worse than that you know we talk about targeted tax cuts this this tax cut is exquisitely well targeted i think the inheritance reasons that emily pointed out yeah the inheritance tax changes Um, are equally disgusting to me that's good yeah that's a good one too but you know that i think that the answer to the democrats malpractice and i agree with you is it is very hard when the president has the argument about an economy that is roaring at 4.1% growth, albeit for a quarter and albeit juiced up um, by advanced spending to for, by people who are trying to deal with his um, coming tariffs and things like that. He, it, people don't take in details about economic arguments. They kind of take in the sort of broad sense of how they're feeling and broad numbers. And the economy's doing pretty well right now. And that is wind at Republicans' backs. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're uh, sitting on your yacht, Emily, your yacht, your low-tax yacht. low-tax yacht. Um, the, the New York Times Magazine, where I work, is in the midst of publishing an amazing issue about climate. It's called Losing Earth. It has incredible photographs and this... Um, historical kind of majestic narrative. And the thesis is that between 1979 and 89, the world had a real, real chance to deal with carbon emissions, to prevent climate change, and came close and failed. And so it is the story of that decade and that attempt and failure. And um, it's, you know, one of those like historical counter narratives. You're being asked to imagine that something could have um could have come to fruition that didn't. Um, but it's just really worth reading and thinking about um, in these waning summer days um, as, you know, we seem, at least in this country, to be further away from really addressing climate change. Did it's you, by Nathaniel Rich. Did you follow the, the counter-arguments made by a lot of uh, 
climate science people who I, I thought very effectively pointed out some deep problems with with the narrative. Yeah, Even I have been following. reading that. Well, or at least just starting to. And my husband, Paul Sabin, who's a um, environmental historian at Yale, was um, also expressing some preliminary skepticism to me this morning. And, you know, I think that's all part of it, right? Like you put a provocative thesis like this out there, you marshal your evidence, and then, you know, other people knock it down. And sometimes they win that argument. But um, it's kind of all intellectually interesting. Ruth. So. What's your chatter? My chatter is in the age of Trump, um, there are probably two ways to do escapism. Um, one is uh, what one of my kids is doing is binge watching old episodes of The West Wing. Or, you know, for me, it would be watching like old Hugh Grant movies and just but but I seem to be trending much more towards kind of binge-watching, dystopian-ish TV series. So my husband and I have been settled in night after night um, with Babylon Berlin. We're, as usual, a little bit late to the game. It came out last year. Um, but it's a uh, this very tangled, convoluted story about um, corruption and intrigue in Weimar, Germany. And there's something about the sort of um, decadence of it that is a little bit uplifting in the sense of you're thinking about other people's troubles for a change instead of um, what's going on right in front of your face. So I'm that's my cocktail chatter. I'm quite enjoying it. All right. Uh, I have a cocktail chatter. But first, I want to do a listener chatter. Again, listeners, you are you so have good. Brought your so good. A game to cocktail chattering. Just a reminder, we're, we're soliciting your suggestions for what your you would be chattering about at your at your yacht bound cocktail parties. And uh, we're asking you to tweet at us at Slate Gabfest, send us a, you know, a, a, a work of culture, a historical episode you're interested in, an article, some data, something fascinating that, that you uh, you think Gabfest listeners would like to know. And this week's cocktail chatter actually uh, was going to be my chatter. And then I'm but Green Neck at Green Neck um, beat me to it. And it's a, an amazing set of infographics produced by Bloomberg about how America use, uses its land. And actually the authors, let me get the authors because they did such a good job. So it is, the authors are Dave Merrill and Lauren Leatherby uh, on Bloomberg. And it's, it's uh, there's a bunch, they cut the data a different ways, but the most incredible map, which I'm, you may have seen in your Twitter feed, is, is uh, shows how we use land, um, the percentage of land devoted to different hu human activities. So the Urban housing, for example, turns out to be uh, where are the percentages. I don't have the percentages here. Urban urban housing turns out to be basically New England. If you had all urban housing that would occupy New England, livestock is forty one percent of U.S. land. Wow, that's crazy. I would never have known that. Um, private family timberland is the entire Pacific Northwest. Airports airports are airports are a measurable amount. Um, the hundred largest landowning families together occupy. So a hundred families together have basically have the entire state of Florida, which is shocking. Urban commercial is basically the equivalent of New York state. The food that we eat is basically Pennsylvania and Ohio is takes up all the food that we eat. Um, anyway, it's a wonderful set of graphics that Greenneck points us out to. Uh, so check those out. So my, my chatter, however, uh, are uh, two quick ones. One is the Atlantic has a great photo essay of bike share graveyards in China. So in China has a ton of bike share programs. I feel like this happened all... already. No, sorry. I don't know. <laughs> I Maybe. feel like I saw some amazing photo essay of this recently, like months ago. Well, there, I'm there was be amazing quiet. photo essays of the bikes, sort of bike shares as they're getting launched, the huge numbers of bikes. But now it's all these bikes end up being broken or abandoned or the bike share. Okay. Maybe this is like chapter two. And yeah, so it's just these these photos of incalculably huge numbers of bikes, some of which are in dumps, some of which have been crushed into cubes, you know, huge piles of tires that have been stripped off bikes. Um, it's just gasp-inducing, the photos. And then my other chatter is just that over the last three nights, I have read to my uh, nine-year-old son, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which he had never read and I hadn't read to him. And my goodness, that book holds up. Wow, does that book hold up? 
holy cow, are you gonna keep going because you know there's more to be had from that series yeah it, they, so there are i'm gonna we're gonna do prince i think prince caspian in a second yeah. maybe we'll do dawn treader and then i horse and his boy was always my favorite book in that series so i I'm love sure that we'll one but that. then there's the one is it called, what's the is the magician's nephew that's the prequel Yep, the magician's nephew is a prequel. Right. The silver chair, I did not like. The voyage of the, the Dawn Treader drags, I think, a little bit. Oh, does it? Uh, yeah, no, that's the one that. I remember getting a little lost in in childhood. But yes, keep going by all and means. The, the last, the last battle is a little too eschatolo- eschatological. I, I had not realized. I mean, I, of course, I knew that they're Christian allegory, and but I had missed a ton of that as, and I knew even as a kid they were Christian allegory. But wow, it's 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 heavy and yes, so he's not- so Jesusy. <laughs> Agreed. Um, yeah, but you don't have to be Jesusy to enjoy it. Yeah. So. Wow. It was so. It was great. He he can just write his tush off. That guy. That's C.S. Lewis. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced today by Jason DeLeon and Danielle Hewitt. I think Jocelyn might be back next week. Not sure. Who cares? We got Danielle and Jason. Our researcher is Izzy Road. Follow us on Twitter and tweet some chatters at us at, at @slategabfest for Emily Bazelon and. Always game, always wonderful, Ruth Marcus. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so excellent always to have you, Ruth. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.